One, one part of this that's really important is that the present is not instantaneous. It's a, a duration that has some extent during which things are becoming definite. My view is there's a problem to be solved with the block universe view and the idea that mm. the microscopic laws are time invariant. And I think there's probably some assumptions that go into that. Laplace's weather forecaster, exactly. Um, I like that. I might steal that. The, the system's not causally sensitive to those micro details. It's causally sensitive to the overall pattern. And in fact, that's even how individual neurons work, right? You know, individual neurons, they're summing inputs over some amount of time and they may be sensitive to the fact that they've gotten 10 spikes per second or whatever, per 100 milliseconds, say, uh, but they don't care what the exact pattern is. In fact, they, they can't know. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Brainspace Time podcast. Sorry for the long break. I've been a bit busy starting my new master's course, so I won't be able to upload episodes very regularly. Uh, today's guest is Kevin Mitchell. He's an associate professor of genetics and neuroscience at the Trinity College Dublin, and he just published his second book, Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will. As the title suggests, it's an evolutionary and neuroscientific case for why we have free will. The book is incredibly well written and surprisingly accessible considering how much science details are in there. So if you haven't read it, go and read it. Uh, the link to that is in the description. However, from Twitter, my impression has been that a lot of people have actually already read the book. So what I thought I would do for this episode is cater for those people by trying to pick up some ideas from the book and try to move forward with them. So it's interesting for people who are already familiar with the book. For example, uh, Kevin and me pick up on the idea of quantum indeterminacy in the book, and then link that to ideas in physics about the phenomenological error of time, which picks up on the notion of how the past feels different to the future. We also talk about the present the thing between the past and the future, and whether it's a thing, and whether a fly and a human would perceive the length of that present differently. We also pick up on the meaning chapter in Kevin's book, how meaning is not epiphenomenal, but plays a causal role. And then we link that to the idea of Robert Nozick's pleasure machine and whether you should go into it. And then there's loads more in the episodes, such as why I see elegance, those little worms are a good model for agency, top-down causality, how it's implemented in the brain, entropy, and more. Okay. Cheers, Kevin. All right. Hi, Kevin. I thought that a good starting point could be, well, what's the classical story of why we think that we don't have free will? Uh, what do philosophers or neuroscientists say? And why do they always work on the lowest level? Yeah, um, all good questions. So, um, so there's a few kind of arguments uh, for why we don't have free will or couldn't have free will, really in principle, actually. And then there's some, there's some sort of empirical evidence that people take to be also sort of just demonstrating that we don't have free will in the sense that we're not fully in control of our own decisions, or we are not always aware of our own motives and so on. So maybe I'll start with the, that high level, right? The idea that, um, you know, from psychology and neurology, for example, where you can have, say, patients with neurological lesions who who do something, but then when they're asked why they did it, they confabulate. So they make up a story mm -hmm. about why it is, and it's a kind of a post hoc rationalization of their action, given their best understanding of the world, which, because they have a neurological lesion, is a bad understanding of the world, but the logical sort of conclusion is reasonable, given that. And so many people look at that evidence and think, well, 
that just shows that no one ever knows why they do anything. And I don't, I, I just don't buy that. I think that's just a, an extrapolation that's not warranted. In a sense, it's like saying that because sometimes our visual systems can be fooled by optical illusions, that nothing we see is, uh, is reliable, right? That we have no real sense of anything that we see. So there's neurological evidence, there's psychological evidence too, where you can show, you know, maybe that people are uh, prone to some kind of priming that they're not aware of, where they're being manipulated by usually uh, a nefarious psychologist who has set up some kind of experiment and um, priming them with something and then causing their behavior to be affected in a way that they don't know about and don't, uh, don't admit actually when challenged about it. Again, I'm sort of open to the idea that that might happen sometimes. It doesn't mean it happens all the time. My view of that literature, a lot of the priming literature is it's way, way overblown and just doesn't replicate. And the effect sizes, if they're real at all, are much, much smaller than we think. So I'm not prepared to just, you know, accept that that literature at face value because I think the, well, the replication crisis has sort of started with that that field. So. But anyway, the, the, the gist of it is that we do things for motives that are not always clear to us. And the, the, it kind of undermines the idea that we're rationally in control of all of our actions all the time, which, you know, is fine. We don't actually have to be rationally in control of all our actions all the time in order to be able to have the capacity to be in control some of the time. And that, for me, again, is it's an extrapolation that just goes beyond the evidence. Um, there's also evidence from behavioral genetics, which I think is really interesting. So we, you know, the, the field has found that many things like personality traits and other sort of psychological behavioral traits um, are partly heritable. That is that we are, you know, we're, we, we come with some innate psychological predispositions due actually partly to genetic variation, but also partly due to just the way our brains develop. And so a few years ago, I wrote a book called Innate, which is all mm. about that subject. And one of the questions I used to get, you know, when I talk about that was, well, you know, if I just am wired this way and it's affecting my decision making, which is what personality traits are after all, right? They reflect patterns of decision making across many, many contexts. Well, then how free am I? I didn't, you know, I didn't choose to be like this. And um, do I really... Do I really have free will? Does that undermine the idea? And I think what it does is it highlights that there are some influences on our behavior. Of course, there are that are things that characterize us, right? Our, our personality, that continuing to be us means continuing to behave like us through time. So it's not a surprise that there are, there are those sorts of influences. Some people see them as complete determinants, that mm -hmm. everything that has gone before just fully determines what you're going to do in an instant. And I think that that just goes, again, way, way too far. And there's really no empirical evidence for that strong claim. But that's a claim that, for example, Robert Sapolsky um, has made in his recent book, Determined, which, you know, like I said, it just goes way beyond the evidence of some sort of statistical influences to infer a real-time determinative effect of all those prior um, prior causes that have impinged on your on your nervous system. But that gets to another um, kind of level of concern about free will, which is that neural level, right? Where you could say, okay, I'm, you know, right now I'm just 
acting out my pre-programming and that pre-programming is instantiated in the way my brain is physically configured right now. And it's a physical machine. And so it's going to just sort of obey the laws of physics and evolve in a way that um, is quite deterministic. And so it's, it's, it's simultaneously embracing the idea of determinism and reductionism, where in effect, it's saying, look, all these thoughts and beliefs and desires and intentions that you, that you think you're operating on when you're doing cognition, when you're thinking about what to do, they're really just neural states. And the neural states are where all the causal power lives. And, you know, there's a real temptation to slide into that way of thinking because neuroscience has been so successful, right? Because we can mm. go in, in in humans and especially in animals, and we can observe different circuits active under different conditions. We can drive those circuits. We can make an animal falsely perceive something or falsely believe something. Uh, we can tweak the engines of, of cognition and make it behave in different ways. It just really looks like it's all neural mechanism. And like the cognition is almost epiphenomenal, right? Mm. It, it almost sort of dissolves away. And because it feels like, because we have the power to manipulate, it feels like we have a full explanation at the level of, of neural, neural firing. So many neuroscientists, I think, uh, or at least some vocal ones, express that view that really you're nothing more than the firings of all those neurons. Francis Crick famously expressed it that way. And it's interesting if you start to go down that route, right? You start to reduce from the level of cognitive phenomena to neural phenomena. Well, then why stop, right? There's no principled reason once you're reducing things to stop until you hit rock bottom. And, you know, in terms of physics, we don't know what rock bottom is, but it's at least atoms and particles and quantum fields and so on. And, you know, many people would say that those, the, the laws of physics that influence how those, any physical system evolves, are themselves fully deterministic, which is just a mistake in my view, but that's the claim. And that therefore, um, there, there are no real choices. So many, you know, free will skeptics who embrace that view of determinism would say, look, the universe is just evolving according to the Schrodinger equation. And all the atoms are going to do what they're going to do. What does it matter that they're in neural circuits? Big deal. They just happen to be organized mm -hmm. that way. And certainly, what does it matter that the firings mean something in terms of a belief or desire? That, that There's no way that that could have an influence on a physical system, right? How could a thought, how could the content of a thought possibly push atoms around in a physical system? Um, so those are the, those are the main challenges and there's one there's one extra challenge which is to is to say even in physics if you accept that at the lowest level there's some indeterminacy mm. many people would say well that doesn't help that doesn't give you free will because either everything is determined by the laws of physics in which case you're not making a decision or some things are happening because they're just random at that lowest level and adam goes this way or that way and that sort of determines how the whole system evolves through time, but again, you are not in charge, right? You're not doing it. And so the challenge, I think, for mounting a defense of the idea of free will is to understand how could you be in charge? How could it be that you, or indeed any organism, right, for agency at all to exist, how could it be that the organism is the locus of causal power, right? That the whole thing as a coherent entity, 
is able to exert causal power in a way that doesn't violate the laws of physics, um, but that adds some new types of causation to the universe that weren't there before living living things uh, emerged. And um, that's the, so that's the challenge that I try to tackle. It sounds ridiculous when I <laughs> when I say it like that. It sounds ridiculously ambitious, uh, but that's the challenge I try to tackle in in the book. Yeah, uh, it, it is very ambitious. Um, um, side question, uh, you uh, and Sapolsky, you're doing kind of a debate sometime soon, right? Yeah, we did, actually. We did it. Oh, you did already. Ago. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. perfect. It's, it's available. I mean, if, if you can just Google Mitchell Sapolsky debate, you'll you'll find it. It was it was fun. It was interesting. We didn't um, we didn't really change each other's minds, not surprisingly. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll definitely put that in the description. Um But um, yeah, I think we'll, especially what you said at the very beginning, that neuroscience kind of neglects this meaning level and like thinking about, well, what does it mean for the organism and how, I guess that can be really fruitful. But as you said, in sort of the history of reductionist neuroscience, we haven't really done that. So I guess we don't, I guess, I guess, as you said, like the point is then that we then conceptually extrapolate to, well, if reductionism was useful, then it must be we just must be atoms colliding, uh, explaining it all the way bottom up. But um, I think we can actually start at that level, level because as you said, um, it is not so clear that uh, it's deterministic on a low level because of quantum indeterminacy. And there's also this idea of quantum decoherence of how um, macroscopically quantum interactions kind of come together. And maybe you could kind of unpack that for us, I guess. I, I tried to Google it and it, it is very confusing. It's super confusing. And I, I'm going to do my best, but I'm not a physicist. Um, and also just, uh, I, I also think no one fully understands yeah. um, how to interpret all of quantum mechanics in terms of what that means for the nature of reality. But I'm going to give uh, at least a little stab at it that, that I think is you know, to the to the level that we need to understand for this question. Okay, so many people will be aware that quantum systems have some fundamental indeterminacy to them in lots of different ways. So there's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, for example, which just mathematically says that uh, the there's some things called conjugate variables like position and momentum. Um, and there's a few other ones that can't be fully specified with infinite precision at the same time. And it's simply a mathematical truth that arises from the fact that in things that have wave-like properties, the position and the momentum are effectively Fourier transforms of each other. And the more precise you make one, the less precise you make the other. Mm. Now, some people interpret that in terms of just an observer thing. It's like it's just about our knowledge, potential knowledge of the world. I don't think that that's right. Uh, I don't think there's any reason why observers should have any privileged position in, in physics, right? In the framework of physics or the nature of reality, if it's, if it's depending on observers, I think there's something wrong with that framework. My own view is that um, these, these sort of properties are somewhat indefinite and they become defined through interaction. So this is the, the idea of a, you know, the, the collapse of the wave function in, in some moment of interaction. And that's the other area where you, can see some indeterminacy in the fundamental 
sort of equations of quantum mechanics, like the Schrodinger equation, which describes how some some you know quantum system will evolve through time, but it, and it gives very very precise predictions in terms of a probability density function effectively. But so if you if you observe a system over many many instances, you'll get a very accurate following of those probabilities. But on any one instance, it seems to be random which probability actually which event actually happens. Right. So um, that is random in a biased sense, right? The probabilities are biasing it, but they're not fully determining it. And there's a whole big discussion about what could be determining it. And that goes back 100 years, and it's not really fully settled. But what I take it to mean, at least, is that nothing in quantum physics says that the laws are deterministic. Right? So at least I think everyone can agree on that. I hope that that's true. And it, what that means is that the low-level details of a system, that is everything that you can define about a system at some given moment. Sorry, let me rephrase that. Every, every value that a system actually has at some moment, whether we'll take the observer out of it, um, plus the laws of physics do not fully determine the next state of the system. They underdetermine it. I think that's really important. And so many people would say, however, that when you get a bunch of, of atoms and particles together, their sort of quantum weirdness averages out. Any bits of quantum noise average out. And at the macroscopic level, the level of objects like you and me and things that we interact with in the real world, quantum events won't have any effect on um, how a system behaves. And well, I'll say two things. First of all, that that may be true for some kinds of systems where they don't have any nonlinear interactions, like, for example, the orbits of the planets, right? They may be really, really deterministic because they do average over all that um, noisiness in a, in a linear fashion. But we know that there's loads and loads of systems that are not like that, that are really, really have lots of nonlinear interactions, which means that small differences in some parameters of the system at some given point can magnify through time to cause hugely different outcomes. And the weather is a good example of that, right? Mm. It's why we're bad at predicting the weather a month from now on, you know, on Tuesday, the 27th of December, we have no idea what the weather is going to be like, mm. except in a broad sense, right? Um, so those are chaotic systems. And some people would say, oh, look, chaotic systems are deterministic. It's just about ignorance. But that's only true for deterministic systems, right? You can have indeterministic systems that are chaotic. There's no reason why you can't have both. Um, and I would say a lot of the world does have both. So, but the other aspect that's interesting is that the idea that classical physics is deterministic, if you dig into it, it's just an idealization, right? It, there's, there's actually no evidence for that. There isn't any empirical evidence for that. There couldn't be because you would have to be able to measure things with infinite precision to some, uh, you know, far future date, which, you know, again, if we're not talking about simple things like the orbits of the planets, we can't do that. So um, there's an idealization in physics that actually comes from the philosophy of numbers. And th this was something I didn't expect to get into, um, a little rabbit hole, but really quite interesting. So mm -hmm. classical physics is deterministic if the real numbers that give the parameters of some system that you're working with 
are given with infinite precision all at once. So you could imagine the parameters of a weather system, right? The molecules of all the air and the wind's speed and whatever else, heat temperatures and so on. Um, if you knew those with complete precision right now, then you could predict the future weather forever. It's like Laplace's weather forecast. It's Laplace's weather. Laplace's weather forecaster. Exactly. Um, I like that. I might steal that. So, um, so, so the idea is that the immediate values, the, the close values after the decimal point, will be the ones that have the biggest effect on the weather tomorrow, right? But the ones that are a little bit further down, you know, a little bit of imprecision in, in the mm -hmm. sixth digit might mean that your forecast for Tuesday or Wednesday might be off a little bit. And mm -hmm. some imprecision in the hundredth digit might mean your forecast for, uh, you know, a month from now would be off by a little bit or maybe off by a lot. So mm -hmm. you can think about those digits as affecting the future states of the system, right? The farther down you go in the decimal places, the more... Uh, the future depends on those things. And the closer you are, the less the prediction depends on those. So one way, uh, sort of a, a problem with thinking about that is that for a system to contain all the information about all the future states, there just isn't enough physical space in the system to do that, right? It would have mm -hmm. to have all the information about its current state, but that would have to entail all the information about all future states, which... Uh, seems to be a physical impossibility, given that information has to take a physical form. That's that's one argument, at least. And that's an argument that makes sense to me. Uh, I don't know how widely accepted it is. by It's by uh, people like Nicolas Gizan and others. Um, but the view that it gives is one where the future is open in the sense that the values of parameters of a physical system are, it's not just that they're unknown, it's that they're indefinite. They don't have a truth value beyond some point. They're just fuzzy. And, um, and they become more definite through physical interactions that basically catch them mid-jitter, at least that's one way of thinking about it, and force them into, in, you know, to take on some, some value. And then when they do that, so that happens in the present. That's, in fact, what the present is. It's that moment where events are happening, hmm. where the indefinite future is becoming definite through interactions, which, and, which then become fixed and they become the past. So for me, that's, uh, that's a nicer, less arbitrary way of thinking about these, uh, this sort of transition from indeterminacy to determinacy than the quantum to classical spatial scale spatial complexity idea, which always just seemed really arbitrary. It's like, where's that threshold where you go from things being indeterminate to, to being deterministic? Yeah, I, I definitely want to get onto the present. And uh, uh, I've been also reading, trying to understand physics by reading Lee Smolin's work, where mm -hmm. that uh, temporal uh, aspect in the present is important. But I thought, um, as you were saying, um, you... In for evolution and to work with this noisiness, you kind of have to, if you really want to anticipate for changes further and further away, you really have to like work with the noises from the get go. I, I guess do some coarse graining in a way where it doesn't really matter that that hundred digits is leading to something else. And maybe I was going to ask you how C elegance, because you talk about this in the book, 
are a good model for agency, but maybe you could also talk about how the elegance are a good model for discourse graining and noise in the system and how that is used. Yeah, yeah great. Well, so that gets into the, the core of the question, which I think in this case, the, the debate on free will normally starts with this uh, question of determinism and then mm. says, if determinism is true, we have no free will. That's what the free will skeptics would say. Or if determinism is true, yeah, we don't have any choice. No, no, no organism really has a choice in what to do, but it can still be thought of as the responsible agent for what happens because its configuration is still causally effective. And I don't think either of those makes sense. I don't find either of those positions satisfactory, but also I don't see any reason to start from that position, right? I mean, everything we've just talked about in physics suggests that the universe is not in fact deterministic. So why mm. everyone starts with that uh, premise, I don't mm. know. But if you start with the other premise, that there's this noisiness and that the future is radically open, then you completely flip the script, right? Then you have a different challenge. For an organism, the challenge is all these potential things could happen, both out in the world and within it, right? Within its own system, all mm. kinds of things could happen. And it has to constrain things to make happen what it wants to happen. Hmm. So at the first level, it's constraining things inside itself just to stay alive, right? That's what being alive means, is you have all these dynamical processes in a certain sort of certain pattern that's always in flux, but it maintains the, the sort of global nature of itself through time by doing thermodynamic work. Okay, so, so we already know that organisms are doing that, right? They're constraining their parts to remain within a certain pattern, and, and they're preventing all the other possible futures from happening. The futures that you see happen when an organism dies, right? And all its atoms mm -hmm. go off and do whatever the hell they like, right? So constraint is the nature of life, basically. Mm -hmm. That's the most important thing about being a living thing. And you can just um, sort of extrapolate that idea to uh, effects on the environment. So once organisms have the capacity to move around in the world or act on the world in some way, then they can also constrain things in the outside world, in their environment, to make them how they would like to be. And so the question then is, what kind of cognitive control systems do you need in order to be able to do that? And I think the story of evolution, at least the one along the lineage that leads to humans, is of this increasing capacity to be able to constrain the future at farther and farther dates, right? Mm. Farther and farther away from the present. So many organisms, you know, like a C. elegans, for example, can move around in the world. Uh, they can affect things in the world. They can eat things in the world, for example. They can push things around, whatever. Um, and but but they don't. Uh, and and they do that. They control their behavior in response to fairly immediate like homeostatic signals and signals of what's out in the environment. And they're close to it, right? Because they can only touch things and smell things when smelling is effectively physically contacting the molecule of interest. Hmm. So they have a pretty short time horizon in terms of what they're interested in and, and, and what they're capable of, if you will, thinking about, right? Hmm. They're just not capable of thinking about things in the five minutes away or 10 minutes away because they have no um, window onto a, a future world at all, actually. 
But as things get more complex, they build up those windows, especially with things like vision and, and hearing, because those are really distance senses. And at the same time, it therefore becomes profitable to build a cognitive control system that allows you to predict the world a little bit further in uh, in advance and regulate your behavior so that you're not just reacting to immediate stimuli or immediate states that need fixing, like you're hungry, for example, mm. but you're doing things because you know you're going to be hungry. And so you're, you're going on a hunt or you're going to the shops or whatever it is because you know you want to eat dinner later on, right? So those things are um, all, I guess, ways of thinking about what it is that organisms are doing and what it is that nervous systems are good for. And for me, they're, they're control systems, first and foremost. They're for controlling action. But I guess I like to think about that control of action as making the state of the world be what you want, given it could be lots of other ways, right? It, because it's indeterministic. Mm. So that, for me, is a, is a handy framework in which to think about what behavior is for and what it's about. Yeah, this wanting the environment to be what you want i guess you could also say that somehow about like internal structures like evolution selects for because i was talking about like because there's also like endogenous noise that you actively want to create so that you can exploit not needing to worry about um like in a way that the undeterminacy not being a problem because uh one is acting upon the signals that one wants to act upon as as you said to then do the long term yeah. uh planning but um so one thing and I, I i guess this is maybe something we'll never solve only solve in 100 years but let me just ask you um so as you said um unlike planets or electrons living systems are non-linear chaotic and small changes as the weather lead to massive uh changes over time and then you have this quote here um from chapter eight, which I really liked about how new systems use this indeterminacy. And um, you were saying that, okay, I'll, I'll just read out. Uh, it's an equilibrium process with binding and unbinding both happening over any period of time. Higher concentrations just make the bound state more likely. The same is true for conformational changes that proteins undergo. They're also probabilistic. Indeed, at these small scales, these events are even subject to constant indeterminacy. So in a, in a way you were talking about uh, um, protein conformational changes that are underlie when um, ion channels open that then facilitate spikes and that leads to neural activity on a population level. And I don't know, I, I, I still find it very hard conceptually to wrap my, wrap my head around how does quantum indeterminacy link to something like proteins or conformational changes? Like yeah. there's a bridge. To yeah, be. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you've hit on a really, really central issue, which is the idea that that if there's all this molecular noise, right? So we're, mm. I mean, we can talk about quantum stuff, but you can talk just about thermal fluctuations. So inside yeah. a cell, all the molecules are just bouncing around. They just jitter around um, and they occasionally bounce into each other and bind each other and do something. Right? But, um, but those are probabilistic events as described in that quote. So the question then is, given that there's a high degree of molecular noise, in its uh, components, how does an organism ever constrain the bits to to be, you know, the way that they, it wants them to be? 
Well, the answer is, first of all, that the way it wants to be organized is defined at a higher level, right? So it, it is coarse-grained. It doesn't matter. Mm. It's designed or it evolved in such a way that it doesn't matter exactly whether this protein binds that protein for mm. uh, 10 microseconds or 11 microseconds, right? It, the system is robust to a lot of that noise, and it's it has to be, right? Because it it couldn't have evolved if it, if it weren't. So the, the whole point there is that what you're moving from is a system where all those low-level details are determining what happens to one in which the organization of the system is determining what happens precisely because it's configured in such a way that it, it does average out a lot of those thermal fluctuations and, and so on in order to robustly maintain itself with the parameters that it cares about at a level of precision, precision that it cares about. Right. So, um, so a lot of those, the, the, I mean, that's enabled precisely because there's some indeterminacy at the lower levels. If there wasn't, you would never have an organization that emerges that has some higher order constraining power, right? It just mm -hmm. wouldn't, because it, in order for that to be there, it requires some selection of some kind, right? There has to mm -hmm. be a different way that it could be organized that doesn't have the same, um, causal effectiveness, say, in helping the system to persist through time. Right? So in order to understand these things, you have to take, first of all, what's called a diachronic view. So a, a view that's extended through time. If we want to understand mm. how these systems um, are, we need to understand how they got that way. And the way they get that way is by some organizations being more um, favorable for, in this case, persistence, than other ones, right? So you can get some functionality emerging in the organization of a system. And that's, you know, it shouldn't, some people seem to uh, balk at that idea of it's effectively top-down constraint or whole part constraint, which shouldn't be weird. It's very commonplace. It's how all of our design systems work. It's how the computers work that we're talking over right now. You know, they, they do things because the elements of them are constrained in a certain way for some functionality. And living things have the exact same kind of principles at play. It's just that there isn't a designer. They just come to be that way through natural selection. So these systems can um, buffer a lot of the noise and they can develop higher order organizational structures that enable them to, to do things for reasons, right? So they build in functionalities that can include things like a proclivity or a disposition to move towards a food source mm. and to move away from a dangerous chemical, say, even in a bacterium. So if you think about that, then you, you can get uh, organisms doing things for reasons. This is really the origin of meaning, right? We talked about it earlier. How could the meaning of something have any causal power? Well, it does because that meaning, even in just a very pragmatic sense, is... In, is selected for by natural selection. Right? The so meaning is like in the structure in a way. Yeah, it's, it's embodied as a control policy in yeah. the configuration of the system. But it's still meaningful right? That to, to mm -hmm. the organism. It doesn't separately apprehend the meaning. You know, a bacterium is not thinking about it. It doesn't mm -hmm. go, oh, there's a food source over there. I guess I'll move towards it. Right? It just has the effect of moving towards it. That's just what happens. So... Um, so in, in those kinds of systems, you can have the evolution of doing things for reasons. And that, in a sense, gives the um, 
gives the organism that potential to control the indeterminacy, both in its own parts. It kind of marshals it, it, them towards a purpose, but then also to act on the world. Now, the other thing you mentioned there, though, is that sometimes the indeterminacy is not buffered. It's actually taken advantage of. And there's lots of systems uh, where having a little bit of noisiness is actually good. It's a good. It's a feature. It's not a bug. And there's loads of uh, examples in in neuroscience. There's lots of examples in genetics and development and so on, where some stochastic elements are a very important part of the process. They're actually harnessed by the organism. I mean, I'll give you an example in in just in um, patterning of of an embryo. Even at a very, very early age, some of the some of the cells in an embryo will go on to make the embryo proper, and some of them will make extra embryonic tissues like uh, the placenta and so on. The choice of which one is which is stochastic, and there's some feedback circuits that amplify a little bit of noise that ensure that some of the cells will become the placenta and some of them will become the embryo, but they're not. It's not predetermined which is which. Right. Hmm. So there's a system there that uses a little bit of randomness as a symmetry breaker. And that mm. is a very common theme in development. It's also quite common in, in neuroscience. And sometimes we use that kind of mechanisms, many animals do, to break uh, the deadlock of a decision. We may be in a, in a scenario where we could do A or B. Um, we don't know which is which, which is better, right? They, for all the information that we have, they're sort of equally good. And you could imagine just, you know, a system just sitting there with these equal weights, never doing anything because it can't break that deadlock. But it seems like many organisms will just at some point go, yeah, I don't care, right? I just have to do something. It's more important to do something than to get this right because there is no right. There's no better mm-hmm. here. So they, they just use some kind of neural mechanism like that to, um, to break a deadlock and allow a decision to be made. So there are systems and they're well documented in various organisms, including in C. elegans, actually, that um, are used in that way to take advantage of the noisiness of the system. Yeah. Um, talking about symmetry breaking, let's do more very difficult questions. Um, because in physics, there's this idea that on a microscopic level, all the laws are time invariant, but on a microscopic le- level, there's some time asymmetry where Statistical mechanics, one talks about the second law of entropy, which always increases. And then there is kind of the question of why does, is there an entropic error of time? So why is it that entropy is increasing and not decreasing? And then sometimes people talk about a phenomenological error of time. Why does it feel like the past is fixed uh, and the future is open? Uh, And physicists, most physicists would say, well, um, it doesn't matter what it feels like. It it, it is so, but um, you, in the... um, in the terminacy chapter, you also cite the work, the paper by Lee Smolin and Clara Veda on the quantum mechanics of the present. And there they contrast this block universe view where the future is already determined with a kind of a growing block universe view where in the present, which normally physics kind of neglects as something that doesn't matter, but here the present is seen as something important. And in that, um, as you said, kind of uh, contrasting quantum with classical spatially is kind of arbitrary. But we can think about maybe temporally where uh, at that transition, something is happening temporally. And maybe you could say a bit more about that. And then I'm going to ask you go about flies. Hey, okay. Good. Um, yeah. So 
I, I find Lee Smolin's view of that and clearly clearly Verde's view um, much more appealing and intuitive than the spatial one and, and, and more appealing and intuitive than the block universe view, which Einstein and others have, you know, had proposed where effectively, like you said, there is no direction of time. Mm. You, you have, you know, everything's fully determined um, and you can, and it's determined in either direction. You can go in either direction. Um, the present dictates everything about the future and everything about the past, which doesn't seem to match our reality, obviously. And so there's these questions of where the, the, the macroscopic arrow of time comes from. And one option is the statistical view that the second law of, of thermodynamics kind of demands its existence. I, I mean, you know, a lot of this is above my pay grade. Right? But um, my view is there's a problem to be solved with the block universe view and the idea that mm. the microscopic laws are time invariant. And I think there's probably some assumptions that go into that, despite the fact that you can make your equations that way. Um, my feeling is there's some idealizations that go into the, the interpretation of the, that in terms of the nature of reality that probably don't have to hold. Um, one of those is the idea that the universe started in a particularly low entropy state. Mm. Like right at the Big Bang, it was really, really low entropy. Um, and then it, it, it has to, you know, the entropy can only increase from there. So the reason for increasing entropy is just that it started at a really low state and has only one direction to go, in a sense. But um, I'm not sure that's right. And some other physicists would argue that, in fact, the early universe had sort of average entropy, the entropy you'd expect for any universe. It's just that because it's expanding, the entropy is increasing because there are more states that it could be in because there's more of it, right? So <laughs> you've got a physically uh, constrained universe that's small at a certain stage with a certain amount of stuff in it, and that stuff could be in a certain number of states given the size of the universe. Well, if you double the size of the universe, you should exponentially increase the number of states that the system could be in. And yet, it, it, it doesn't equilibrate as fast as the expansion is going. So mm -hmm. what that means is that actually the information in the universe is increasing all the time. And many physicists would say that that's, no, we've shown that that's not the case. I don't understand that because to me, it almost has to be the case, given the expansion of the universe and the fact that um, we're not at thermodynamic equilibrium. That must mean there are more states that it could be in than there were a minute ago, right? And um, yeah, so I think the to me, I mean, why is there an arrow of time? What does time even mean? Um, those are such deep metaphysical questions. I don't have an answer to them, but I favor intuitively Lee Smolin's view that uh, time is fundamental and that the present is precisely what we define as the, not what we define, but what we experience as the period in which interactions are happening, that events are happening. And it's interesting that, you know, in the block universe view, nothing defines what the present is. Mm. There's no reason why we should be having, experiencing the present at any moment. Why don't we experience everything? Right? It just... And, and I don't like the idea that, oh, it's just because our brains are a certain way that, you know, that I'm not in favor of any explanations of the nature of reality from 
physics that depend on the nature of our consciousness to fully explain them. So anyway, I don't. I made a hash of that, um, but uh, well, that's my that's my best that's my best go at it. Yeah. Um, Can I say one but, other one other thing that's yeah. important? One one part of this that's really important is that the present is not instantaneous. It's mm, not an yes. instant of zero duration. That doesn't make any sense. It's the, what is known as the thick present. It's a time. Mm. It's a, it's, a, it's a, a duration that has some extent during which things are becoming definite, and when yeah. they reach that level of definiteness, that that then becomes the past. Right. This becomes important for some of the philosophical arguments about, you know, could you have done otherwise if at any given moment? If we define the system at this moment, um, there's only one possible state. And I always ask, well, wait, what moment are you talking about? Because mm. if it's a duration, mm. then you can't define everything um, as having fixed values. Instead, you've got a system where everything's in flux um, and changeable, even at the even in your initial conditions. So, um, yeah, so I think. Thinking of time in that way helps to uh, appreciate the opportunities that are afforded to an agent in the present to direct uh, what way things will go. Yeah, uh, you bridged it really nice for me with the length point about the present. And also like just William James phrase, the specious present. Yeah. Um, but um, so when... Like I, I, I quite like this thought experiment. I come back to a lot comparing humans with flies and um, just like on a sort of more experimental level, what one can, well, first of all, if one tries to, if one is so evil as to want to hit, a, as to want to hit a fly, well, we'll notice yeah. that the fly easily dodges one because it's yeah. probably working behaviorally at a quicker time scale. And you can also measure this with the mm -hmm. flicker fusion frequency where you kind yeah. of flick a light at uh, a human or fly. And uh, for us, after 60 flashes a second, it will just seem continuous. But for the fly, you can do it at 400 flashes a second, which kind of signals to me that the fly is working at a quicker timescale than us. And next week, I'm talking to for the, with the podcast with Uri Hasson, who has this idea about temporal receptive windows. And there he did some studies where, for example, he would say that, well, if you look at, I don't know, primary visual reasons, and compared to the field mode network, they work at different time scales, and that probably reflects some sort of hierarchy. And then, well, I always then kind of think, well, if a fly has um, a smaller hierarchy, where maybe the associative regions are closer to the sensory regions, maybe that structurally kind of captures why it can work at a quicker time scale, and maybe it perceives the present at a quicker time scale. Maybe humans, for humans, the present is, I don't know, 300 milliseconds, and for the mm -hmm. fly, it's 50. Yeah. And... Um, I just wonder, well, if we take this thought experiment as interesting, what does that tell us about physics? Because it, it's, um, I think it's very hard to then go from that biology and then think, well. <laughs> yeah, well, I, so for me, first of all, this is super interesting. I'm going to tell you about a study we just did that's really relevant. Okay. But um, so what does it tell us about physics? I think nothing. Hmm. Um, but I think the fact that different organisms perceive the present in uh, as as ha potentially having different duration, right? They have mm. different kind of windows of integration. Actually, argues against this notion that our perception of the present is just uh, the thing that makes it the present, right? It, because mm. it's so arbitrary across different species and so on. Yeah. Maybe that's not the best argument, but anyway. 
Um, so yeah, there's there's big big differences in this rate of uh, visual temporal resolution across species and things that move really fast have to be able to process the world visually very fast because mm. uh, it comes at them much quicker, right? Um, mm. So flies have a very, very high temporal resolution and they have the capacity to act very quickly, which is why it's so hard to swat a fly because they probably, to mm. them, it's like seeing a hand coming in slow motion right, relative to their speed of resolution and ability to act. So every species has uh, kind of an average set point where this temporal resolution is, is set. What's really interesting is, so we've just done a study in humans that shows around that set point, there's a lot of variation. So mm. there's like a 30 hertz variation in that wind, that, that threshold where you see something flickering that looks mm. like it's a stable trait across, uh, across individual humans. So not only do different species potentially see the world and experience the world at different rates, that's probably true to a lesser extent within, within individuals, within a species, including humans. So, yeah, I think that's a super um, interesting aspect just of a broader point that our perception of the world is, is much more idiosyncratic and variable than we uh, than we appreciate a lot of the time in many ways. That's just one of them. But the other aspect there about the hierarchy is really interesting. So you can think about, um, you know, in our in our in our systems, both in our perceptual systems and our motor and behavioral control systems, there's a hierarchy that where the elements at the lowest level are concerned with things happening over the shortest time scales. And as you go higher, you're more and more Th those elements are more and more concerned with things that happen over longer time frames. So, for example, if, if when we're choosing an action, what we're really doing is this nested set of choices where we're choosing or we're integrating with our ongoing plans, our policies and commitments and projects that we have that may be, you know, extending anywhere from minutes to hours to years or decades. And within the context of those longer term plans, those have some constraints on the behaviors that we choose to do at any moment. So we could be talking with someone over Zoom or having lunch or going for a walk or going to work or whatever it is, right? But the behaviors that they, they're not momentary, they're extended through time, right? They're an activity, not an action. But then within the activity, right? Talking to someone over Zoom, actually talking and saying the words is, an, those are actions that are, that are momentary, right? They're constrained by um, the decision to have a conversation, just as you know anything else, the actions that you do are constrained by the activity that you're doing and the goals that you have and so on. So, um, so in any hierarchy like that, there's a natural sort of sense in which it's nested over longer and longer timeframes. And you, you know, you see the same thing in the, in the, in the military hierarchy or in the company. Right. I mean, the CEO of a company mm -hmm. is concerned with long term strategy. And, you know, middle managers may be concerned with this this month's uh, trends and so on. And then, you know, down at the lowest level, say sales salespeople are concerned with are they making a sale right now? Mm -hmm. So um, so it's a very natural way to see hierarchies organized. And the reason is it's super, super efficient to do things that way. And the only way that that can work 
is if there's coarse graining of information from one level to the next, right? The CEO cannot know, cannot deal with all of the information of every single salesperson and every sale that they're making, right? They just couldn't, couldn't handle that information. So instead, they're thinking about long-term strategies and market trends and whatever. Um, and we do you know, very much the same thing with all of our individual behavior in terms of some of the areas of the brain, you know, for example, in the prefrontal cortex, that are, really are concerned with goals and plans and commitments and so on, um, but that provide these nested sets of constraints that inform the choice of actions and activities in any given moment. Yeah, that was nice because it goes back to how top-down causality can actually um, work on quantum indeterminacy because normally you'd think, well, something as large as the cortex house that's supposed to act on protein slash uh, quantum fields. But if it's all temporally efficiently nested, then you can see how it can work at narrower, narrower, narrower timescales, obviously in a coarse-grained manner. But... Um, Yes, and then on top-down causality, um, you, in the book, quote the person of George Alice, who has yeah. this idea that well, you, when you think about, let's say, um, hardware and software, you can kind of think about on hardware and software, there's, I guess, an idea of multiple realizability. Different software can uh, go, uh, work on the same hardware. And then uh, the idea of top-down causality also goes... Well, I guess in biology, the tricky thing is then how do we think about top-down causality as influencing the lower levels and their mass-free levels, computational, algorithmic, and implantational level? And I guess the idea of top-down causality is a computational idea, but I wonder how do you think that these things can be algorithmically, and I guess we talked about noise a bit, so that captures that a bit, and we talked about control theory, but also implementational on an implementational level, what kind of things do you think the brain is doing to work from the top to the bottom? And I know that from you going to the philosophy and neuroscience along by Louis Pessoa, that you were at the talk of Earl Miller about traveling waves, beta rhythms, and that seems interesting. Yep. Um, and I'm sure there are lots of other ways. So like, how do you think about, I guess, the implementation level of top-down causality? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's the question, actually, really. Yeah. Um, and so... There's a way of thinking about it, which I think gets people into trouble, which mm. is the idea that it's the top-down patterns are somehow influencing the random events at the low levels and causing them to be one way or another. And mm. that's not how I think about it. How I think about it is that they don't care. It doesn't matter what those low-level details are. It's just that they mean that that noise at that level means that the system could go one way or another, right? The higher level um, constraints that are acting, say, from prefrontal cortex back to, say, supplementary motor area or motor cortex are constraining how the system will, uh, the configuration of the system, such that it's more likely that it will go one direction than another. Mm. But at a level that's still quite coarse grain, right? Yeah. So say I'm, I'm going to, you know, I, I'm thirsty, so... Um, there's a, a, you know, an increase in the likelihood of me wanting to take a drink, uh, but I could do it with my left hand or my right hand. And it doesn't matter, right? Who, who cares? It doesn't matter. I could do it. It doesn't matter how my arm moves as long as it gets to the glass and I take a drink. Okay. Hmm. So a lot of the details there don't matter. And it's not the case, I think, that those top down ideas or goals or intentions 
literally push the little quantum particles around in certain ways, right? It's that the, we just don't care about the quantum level details because the coarse graining has happened and because the configuration of the system means something. That's the really key thing, that the meaning of uh, neural patterns of activity in different parts of the brain represents something to the organism cognitively. It, you know, it, it corresponds to, say, a belief that there's something out in the world. Um, or an intention to do something or uh, a, a goal, you know, a broad goal or something like that. But the important thing is that those uh, representations are, as you said, multiply realizable in that there may be lots of patterns that correspond to the same thing. And the micro state details are incidental and arbitrary. That's not, the, the system's not causally sensitive to those micro details. It's causally sensitive to the overall pattern. And in fact, that's even how individual neurons work, right? You know, individual neurons, they're summing inputs over some amount of time, and they may be sensitive to the fact that they've gotten 10 spikes per second or whatever, per 100 milliseconds, say, uh, but they don't care what the exact pattern is. In fact, they they can't know. It, they're, they're just configured to where that information is just lost, right? It's filtered out. Um, and that's even more true as you go to patterns of neural activity between populations of neurons, not just individual ones. So the whole way that the nervous system is configured is set up to extract meaning, to represent meaningful things, and to operate over those, to allow the organism to think about things, right? To do cognition, really do cognition, not mm. just neural firings that happen to feel like something when you think about them, but it's the what they mean that has causal power in the sense that that is what the system is causally sensitive to. If you change the pattern from A to B, you can change the outcome. If you change the pattern from A to A prime, where it's a different microstate, but it still means A and it's interpreted that way, then that doesn't cause a, a change. And so that for me is the key to realizing that cognition is real, that the system mm -hmm. runs on the meaning of these states. That's what it cares about. That's what it's physically configured to care about. And that gives the opportunity for these top-down things to change the configuration of a lower one and say, no, care about this, pay attention to this right now. Uh, increase the likelihood of doing A versus B because we have taken, you know, we, we've adopted this goal and now you need to do this instead of that, right? Um, and and you know you're getting you get to a point where you can move away from really abstract discussions of top-down causation in a metaphysical sense, and just say, look, if I was building a system, if I was building a robot system to do this, a control system, I would want to have that kind of hierarchical level. I would want mm -hmm. to have coarse graining. I would need at some point if my robot had to navigate in an unpredictable world and optimize over many variables at once and integrate lots of uh, information that might be ambiguous and uncertain and highly dynamic, I would want to have a centralized kind of arena where all of those things can be brought together and weighted appropriately and decided over and adjudicated over. Um, and in fact, I'd want to do that in a hierarchical way, where at some levels I'm adjudicating over long-term things, and at lower levels I'm adjudicating over very fast, rapid things. That's just a good cybernetic design of a system for control mm -hmm. of a behavior that's quite flexible in an unpredictable environment. And it moves away from a kind of a mysticism or being kind of, you know, um, 
yeah, mystified by the idea that thoughts could push atoms around. It's a really sort of dualistic view. When you you know you realize that a thought is not an immaterial thing; it's a pattern of neurons neurons firing, and it's the meaning of the pattern that's important, right? So you can't reduce it to just neurons either. Mm. Um, you have this nice middle ground where it's like, yeah, it's kids, it's it's about some physical thing, but it's a physical thing with meaning. Yeah, um, you were saying it's not causally sensitive to the lower levels and you kind of perfectly bridge me onto meaning. Um, so in the book, you make a long case for how over evolution, you have more and more, as we kind of talked about, um, needing to act on different timescales and over evolution, you have more comments that might, like we can act over very, very long timescales, technology and I guess institutions make that even longer. And you sort of have this decoupling from the sensory motor loop And um, when you said not casually sensitive, that reminds me of kind of a lot of people in complexity science like David Crocker would call this sort of functional closure or dynamical sufficiency that you can work on that level kind of independently without going on level below. Um, and historically, this is related to autocatalytic sets, which I think is really interesting. But my question is kind of, so I was on a hike with my friend, Charlie, shout out to you, Charlie, you're great. And He asked me if you have ever heard of like Robert Nozick's experience machine or pleasure machine, whether I would go into it. And for, I guess, the listeners who might not have heard of this, it's this idea that you go into a machine and this machine will make you endlessly happy. Um, but once you go in, you can't decide to go out. And I kind of, I guess, question it because I then said, well, sure, um, maybe if this is, we're trying to be biologically realistic, can a machine like this exist? Sure, it can maybe have loads of activate my basal ganglia all the time and I get all the dopamine I want. But then I thought, well, maybe in a way in human evolution or maybe, I don't know, other birds, can, other animals can do this too. I love corvids. Um, maybe the meaning level can be abstracted in such a way that um, you would not feel very happy in the um, experience machine because the meaning level is kind of um, functionally closed away from the dopamine happiness machine that the machine would provide. And I would probably be very sad because I would feel this is not very meaningful. Um, and I don't know, what do you, would you buy into that? Or do you think in a way yeah. that yeah. meaning would still be somehow grounded in dopamine I, or something? I mean, it's really interesting. I, I, I think, um, you know, if you look at our behavior, we're not purely uh, driven by immediate homeostatic needs, right? Yeah. So we could be, Uh, say right now, I could be hungry because I haven't had my lunch yet, but I'm not just going to get up and satisfy my hunger because I'm talking to you. Right? Hmm. Um, so that's not true. Actually, I did have my lunch. But um, so so we're not just purely kind of homeostatic optimizers in, in hmm. the moment, right? And we can predict over longer timeframes and we can use that information to enable us to maximize our... Um, happiness, say, uh, maximize our fittedness over longer timeframes, right? Um, I guess some people in the free energy principle world would say you're minimizing free energy over a longer timeframe. Mm. And that may involve allowing some states of free energy to increase um, temporarily while you're, you know, thinking about longer term goals, right? So, so that to me is a reasonable um very likely scenario and, and, you know, phrasing it in those terms, I think is, is perfectly fine. 
So they, so so I think that there are levels of um, drive that we are sensitive to, and some of those are very immediate, like whatever is being stimulated in your pleasure machine. But some of them are much longer term. They're the kinds of things that you know job satisfaction, life satisfaction, uh, you know, some sort of uh, sense of, of um, I don't know, contributing to the world or whatever it is, right? But they're not just immediate things. Now, so yeah, my guess is that uh, while you might be satisfying the, the immediate ones, the immediate goals for maximizing happiness, you wouldn't be satisfying the longer ones, longer term ones, and that would lead to this, um, you know, feeling of dissatisfaction, I would guess. Now, I mean, what's interesting in the scenario that you talk about is that um, many people do go into the pleasure machine and succumb to it. I mean, it, you're basically talking about uh, heroin addiction or, or mm. something like that. And what's really sort of both horrendous in terms of the effects that it has, but also enlightening in terms of uh, telling us about how these systems work is that you know, we know a lot about how those systems hijack the reward motivation systems, and they make the immediate reward motivation systems much, much more salient and powerful. Mm-hmm. And they override this ability for um, longer term goals to um, constrain those uh, those immediate needs and impulses. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, they they um, lay bare the machinery that we use for this kind of nested uh, goal-driven behavior, which allows us to, most of the time, transcend uh, sort of um, immediate gratification. Um, Yeah. So I guess my uh, final two questions um, would be first, um, like when writing the book, you did a lot of reading, which, which is great. And I guess you also were talking to a lot of people. So you have had exposure to, well, you are a geneticist, neuroscientist, but you had, and I, I guess you read a lot of, especially like developmental stuff mm-hmm. uh, and evolutionary stuff, but also you, you had lots of exposure to philosophers, philosophers, physicists, and this book is for the general public, but I'd really like to hear what kind of research would you like to see more to kind of combine these disciplines to look at all of these questions? because it seems very tricky and it seems we're not very close to any of answering any of these kind of Mm. conceptual questions or like how to get closer to them. Yeah. Yeah. So my view, and it's partly why uh, I wanted to write the book now is that we can approach these abstract metaphysical conceptual problems in the abstract, or we can look in practice and see how did nature solve these problems? And that was the approach that I wanted to take was to say, rather than having, you know, these uh, debates that have gone on in the abstract for millennia, um, let's just look at the concrete instantiation of these um, systems, these control systems, and see what we can make of them. So if we want to understand, you know, if we have free will or what agency consists in, then let's see how they're instantiated. Let's see how they work. Um, and let that inform our understanding of how free we are and how our will operates and um, and also how it can be impinged or infringed on in various ways when we, ha- you know, by circumstances or by 
our own um, dispositions, by the brain, our way our brain is wired, you know, by drug addiction or psychiatric illness or anything else, right? So there's a very practical um, payoff here mm. in thinking about free will because that is basically the, you know, cognitive behavioral control is um, impaired in all kinds of neurological psychiatric symptoms uh, syndrome. So, um, so yeah, I guess what I would say is that it feels to me like it's already happening. In fact, mm. that neuroscience, uh, computer science, cognitive science, psychology and, and biology generally are coming together in ways that I think are really going to be very powerful. They've been quite siloed. There's been a sense that neuroscience has been driving itself further and further away from psychology. Like rather than explaining how the mind works, it's like explaining it away. You know, it's like, we don't need that. We don't need those concepts. We've got neural circuits and synapses and uh, systems. We're quite happy, you know, at this level. Uh, it feels like the era of systems neuroscience that we're entering right now, the ability to record tens of thousands of neurons in awake behaving animals is going to let us go back to cognitive, you know, bring it neuroscience mm -hmm. back to cognition, back to psychology and so on, um, where we can see, yeah, the neural circuits are the machinery that mediates how the mind works, but they're not the same thing. You can't eliminate cognition. So I think that getting, you know, grounding these things in, in empirical work is going to be really important. And I think on the AI side and the sort of robotics side, for me, that's just a great testing ground, right? We have these ideas and we talked earlier about the, you know, the nested hierarchy, for example, and top-down causation. Well, let's see, let's try to build that, right? What would that, hmm. what would a system like that look like? And um, can we get a, away from these sort of abstract problems that people seem to have with ideas of top-down causation by just showing them, you know, just say, look, here it is. This is what I mean. This is, this is how the system can work. And in order to work like this, these things need to be true. They need to be the case. And um, yeah, so that, that to me feels like a productive way to move forward with these debates where we're really much more tightly linking the philosophical conceptual work with the empirical science. And I, what I don't want to do is downplay the philosophical conceptual work. I think that's really important because you're just doing the empirical stuff in a naive way with um, concepts that are not appropriate. You're not going to make much progress either. So uh, I think, yeah, I would certainly like to see much more integration and interdisciplinary work with neuroscientists and philosophers. Yeah, I, I totally buy that. And I've been really interested recently more like just behavioral stuff like before I do my experiment, I really want to understand the animal I'm working with. Yeah. But um, I, I noticed you didn't mention on the list of disciplines physics, and it's so hard to bridge. And yeah. then there are the physicists who kind of talk about, I don't know, wave function collapse and say, oh, this relates to consciousness. And then I'm like, yeah. well, <laughs> what do we do now here? I mean, it, it seems all very hard to. I mean, yeah, it is very hard. And so um, for me, the key thing, um, first of all, yes, physicists as well, absolutely. Um, but the key thing is, uh, you know, when you're doing this integration is to move from level to level, right? So if you go from physics to consciousness without going through cell biology and developmental biology and genetics mm. and, uh, and neuroscience and behavior and psychology and cognitive science, then you're just not going to get anywhere. You can't just mm. make a jump like that. And even, I mean, that's even true just in 
you know, within biology. If you try to go from genetics to behavior without taking development and neuroscience into account, you're just going to make mistakes. And, I, you know, that's the sort of the history of the field is people trying to make those jumps too quickly without mm-hmm. um, encompassing the intervening levels. So I think it's going to take all comers, basically. Everyone's <laughs> everyone's going to have to pitch in to be able to get a framework um, that makes sense. And, you know, to go from this level, you know, one low level to the one above it is going to require some work with certain disciplines, but then their work may in a sense be done because you're coarse graining and you have different principles operating at, at higher and higher levels. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's a broad project, um, but it feels to me like many people are coming around to thinking it's more tractable than uh, it seemed to be maybe 10 years ago. Hmm. Um, I, I, I saw very briefly on your blog, uh, Wiring the Brain, you had like a, a post on where there was something with science and systems, everything, mm-hmm. and uh, about the curricula. I'm not sure whether that's something you're teaching in Dublin. I um, and I was just thinking, uh, well, first of all, um, <laughs> I guess for my own interest, are there resources with which you're teaching like publicly available? Because it, it looks very interesting. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can say something about it. And sure. then also... Um, I was just thinking like there are uh, so many topics you're going through and I just saw I don't know dynamical systems as like one out of ten and right now I'm struggling enough with differential equations to think oh well this is one of ten in a, in a single course um, I, like I guess my question would be I think often I ask people like what advice can young people or also I guess older researchers take like and then it's always read more, read wider. But yeah. in a way, we only have as much time. Like, what do you think are some of the challenges in doing that interdisciplinary reading and engagement? And how can you overcome those? Like, what helps you if you are, I guess you, for reading this book, or maybe already early, you got into quantum mechanics. Like, what really helped you in uh, getting to grips with that without, I guess, doing a PhD in physics? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know if I succeeded in getting to grips with it, but I did sort of enough for my for my purposes, I felt like. Um, so first of all, yes, reading widely is really important. I think no one can jump into the full literature of any field. It's hard enough to stay up to date with the literature in mm. your own really, really specialized field. So I read a lot of popular science books or just science books, whether mm. they're popular or not. Um, and... Um, you know, to me, that's that's the most efficient way to get into those fields. But you have to do it. I mean, I have found myself that it takes a bunch of them to get into a certain area, right? Mm. If you just read one of them, you kind of get some of the ideas, but then you you know read some more and 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 keep going. So, but for me, the key thing is being able to see. Well, I mean, the exciting thing is when you see mm. some connections between fields that where it wasn't obvious before, but where it seems to highlight a principle that's at play that. Uh, when I learn those kinds of principles, I feel smarter, right? I, it's not just, it's not just I've learned mm. a fact. It's I've learned something that is now part of my cognitive arsenal that I can deploy elsewhere. Yeah. And that was the idea behind this module that we referenced, which we call systems, the science of everything. The idea is that um, in any science, say in biology, we're always you know studying the details, um, but I always kind of was getting a slightly frustrated feeling that when I was looking at some system, say you know the way uh, parts of the brain develops, 
there were principles at play that I figured someone else probably had figured out. Some engineering principles or physics principles or abstract kind of complexity science principles that I just didn't know about. I wasn't trained mm-hmm. in. And um, it always felt like, well, geez, if I, if I just knew about these things, I'd know what was going on here as opposed to just describing what's happening. Right? And so the systems course, the idea of it is that there are that, those kinds of principles that exist in um, abstract mathematical sense. And we can learn about those and we can teach about those and then individuals can apply them in their own area. So we can learn about network science, for example, the idea that networks have a certain structure. There's some, you know, simple mathematics that we can use to describe that. And the course is for general uh, undergrad population. So there isn't hardly any mathematics in it. So it's quite conceptual. But even conceptually, you can describe, you know, the idea that a a neural network has some potential similarities to a social network. And the dynamics of a social network are interesting. And you can see them in the abstract in a neural network or a genetic network or whatever, you know, in an economy, for example. You know, what I was talking about earlier about hierarchy, the the, the upper scales being um, concerned with things on a, on a longer time scale. That, you know, that's part of it. That's a general principle of hierarchical systems. Right? Um, and then, you know, there's things like dynamical systems where you're right, obviously, it's, <laughs> this is an enormous field. And the only thing that we really want to get across to our students is the idea that you can have a system where that's quite dynamic, where individual components have different states. And based on the relationships between those components, the macro states may be confined to a subset of the possible states that would otherwise be possible. So you can have attractors and things like that. And even just you know, the idea of an attractor state, uh, I remember when I learned that, and that was one of those things that I felt made me smarter, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a concept that's just a super, super useful concept to have. And you, I mean, you can apply it in terms of, say, cell differentiation, that, a, you know, the gene expression state of a cell can make it a muscle cell or a skin mm-hmm. cell, but, but not halfway in between, right? There are some states that it can be in, some states that it can't. Um, you can see the same thing in terms of regimes of brain activity, where you know you could have a, a healthy brain or a brain that's having an epileptic seizure, yeah. or psychosis, or mania, or depression, and you can think of those as attractor states as well. Um, so, yeah, the image from Waddington's epigenetic landscape picks up to my mind every time I have yeah. like a machine learning conversation. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, Minimum. absolutely, yeah. You know, there are abstract principles at play there and um yeah so the goal of the course is just to expose students to the idea that there can be an a general science of organization organization mm. systems that doesn't belong to biology or chemistry or physics or uh anything else but it applies to all of those areas it applies to neuroscience and economics and sociology and political science um and so on in in, in ways that are both interesting and powerful to to know about. Um, is or would it be possible for students who are not enrolled in Dublin to get access to, I guess, videos or just the slides or the reading you recommend? Yeah. Like that would be super useful. It would be. And, and so I'm teaching this with um, colleagues from the School of Engineering and the School of Business. Mm. And okay. um, we had our first go at it last year. And that was a learning curve for all of us because um, it's a, it's a t- totally different way of teaching. And, uh, you know, we were building the curriculum as we go. And actually what we hope to do is, is write a, 
a book that would be accessible mm. um, over the course of this, you know, the next couple of years as we refine the curriculum and figure out what works and what doesn't and what level to pitch things at and so on. And so uh, eventually we certainly hope to have some materials and resources that could be used by other people. Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to that book. Um, well, thanks, Kevin. This has been really interesting. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks a million. Um, great, great questions. Lots of, uh, lots of challenging ones in there, but um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to find out when new episodes are coming out, follow me on Twitter. I'd also really appreciate it if you could rate or review this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast. And if you have any feedback, drop me an email at axeli.ilmanen at gmail.com. Until next time.